During the American Civil War, there was a number of innovations in technology that were developed as the Northern Union and the Southern Confederates tried to outdo one another and gain an advantage on the battlefield. The idea of protecting seafaring vessels with some form of metal exterior dates to long before the start of the Civil War. But it was under the duress of the war that the engineering, the designs, and the ships that were actually constructed led to a different view of metal-plated vessels instead of the traditional wooden ships. The Confederate forces of the American South had fewer soldiers, less industry, and no significant navy compared to the Northern Union. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, the Confederates gained control of a significant port of Gosport in Norfolk, Virginia from the Union and set out to create what had previously not been done in America, to build a naval ship clad in iron that would be impervious to enemy fire while at the same time having an armament that would be deadly to the wooden ships of the opposing forces. Hello and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. This super ship that the Confederates were looking to create would negate the large number of wooden naval ships that the Union already possessed and could help support the ground forces and clear blockades that the Union had put in the Confederates' way. Enacted with the onset of the war, the Union's naval blockade of the South would slowly but surely starve the South of the vital resources they need to survive, and because of this, it needed to be dealt with. The Union, after discovering the South's plan, knew that they could not sit by idly and allow the Confederates such an advantage and immediately started an arms race, looking into their own ironclad designs that could be quickly built and put into service to combat the new Confederate threat. The race that led to the first two ironclads clashing in battle caused a leap in naval technology and the changing of ship design around the world for years to come. The epic engagement is known to the world as the Battle of Hampton Roads. It took place in March of 1862 between the Union ship the Monitor and the Confederate ship the Merrimack. This is how it is taught in many history classes and discussed in open conversation, and yet an interesting note is that the Confederate ship was not actually named the Merrimack. The Merrimack was the original name of the ship that was scuttled or purposely damaged and sunk by the Union to prevent it from falling into the Confederates' hands. The Confederates managed to raise the ship from its watery grave and retool and refit it into a ship of their own design. The ship that then emerged was the ironclad dubbed the CSS Virginia. The CSS is a naval prefix that stood for a Confederate States ship. In papers and pamphlets of the time, the ship was commonly referred to as the Merrimack on the Union side, as well as by some of the South. And the name just seems to have stuck even after all of these years. But now let's dive in and take a closer look at just how the first two mighty ironclads of the Civil War came into existence and the impact they had on the American Civil War as well as naval engineering techniques around the world. By the time the American Civil War began in 1861, several countries had already experimented with some form of metallic armoring on seafaring ships. One of the significant examples of this type of design was in a battle between Korean and Japanese forces in the year 1592, a couple hundred years before the American Civil War. 
The Koreans under the admiralship of Yi Sun made use of what are described as tortoise ships. The type of ship was enclosed on the sides and the top, and the deck area that would have been open to the air on standard sailing ships of the time was covered with an iron protective layer. The solid wood sides had small portholes to provide room for cannons and oars. The ship also had sails for wind propulsion that were built onto the top of the deck. The iron covering on the top of the boat deck also had sharp metal spikes facing upwards to prevent enemy troops from trying to easily board the ship. Would you want to leap from the safety of your own ship onto a series of sharp and jagged spikes pointing upward on the surface you were about to land on? It might make you think twice. The sealed off top gave the ship the look of a tortoise with its protective shell covering the vitals of the ship. In 1859, two years before the American Civil War, the French had designed and built their own version of an iron-protected ship called the Gloire. The design was a wooden steamboat measuring 253 feet in length that had plates of iron along the sides of its hull that were four and a half inches thick. The French leader of the time, Napoleon III and his advisors, thought so highly of the design that they ordered another 20 of the vessels that were either under construction or already built by the year the Americans started fighting in 1861. The British also needed to maintain their vast territorial holdings around the globe and were designing their own ships fortified with iron. In 1859, the British started building the armored ships Warrior and Black Prince. By 1861, the British had created or started construction on no less than 10 naval ships clad in protective iron. The strongest of the ships were covered in a full six and a half inches of iron armor. By the year 1861, the British had already suspended the construction of new ships solely of wooden design as they saw the writing was on the wall for this era of naval design. The European powers were ahead of the United States in terms of naval technology as they had empires and territories expanding across the entire globe that they had to protect. The United States did not have the same focus or drive to create innovation in the naval field until the onset of the Civil War. The European countries already maintained vast fleets of wooden ships which they continued to maintain and operate, but by this time they knew that the age of iron ships was coming. After expending all of the resources on the previous wooden ship technology, they were going to continue to use the current ships as effectively as possible, while at the same time slowly updating their navy to the new Iron Age of ships. Going way back to ancient times in the period of the great scientist Archimedes, the king of Syracuse was said to have encased a merchant ship in lead. In the time of the Vikings, metallic shields were positioned along the sides of ships to block incoming missile fire. The American ironclads were not a completely new idea. What they were, though, was a cultural phenomenon that changed the perception of the capabilities of seafaring vessels. With all of the headlines and talk in the towns about the new ironclads, the mindset of the everyday person changed from seeing ships of wooden design to the new industrial age ship of iron. Before this time, only admirals and members of the Navy had their attention on the changing of ship weapons and design, but the American ironclads changed this perception to make the public aware of the technology. A number of different technologies emerged in the years leading up to the Civil War that made the construction of the ironclad ship feasible. Steam power was being used on land to power the railroads that started to crisscross the nation. On rivers, paddle steamers were used to turn the force from the steam into forward momentum for ships. Many of the first ships to implement steam power were river boats which had a giant spinning wheel on the aft or back of the ship. 
The engine would turn the wheel and the wooden paddles spread across the wheel would push water backwards as the wheel spun forwards. This force would propel the ship forward. Many of these types of vessels were used on the Mississippi River and can be seen in modern western movies. When the steamships took to the sea, the paddle wheels were usually placed along the sides of the ship along the outside of the center hull. As the early engines weren't always reliable, sails were usually included on the ships in case the engine gave out or had mechanical issues. The ships that crossed the Atlantic had the paddle wheels straddling the sides of the hull of the ship and could significantly increase the speed along the long voyages. What helped prepare the world for ironclads was the invention of steam-powered screw propulsion. A metal screw would stick out on the submerged part of the aft of a ship, and the steam power would turn the underwater screw, which would cause the ship to be moved forward or backward depending on which way the screw was turned. The screw worked similar to a modern-day fan. It pushed the water outwards as the curved blades of a fan would push the air outwards from the force of the spinning motion. The curved blades scoop air and force it forward to alleviate the resistance. This type of propeller propulsion is what is used on most boats today. This meant that the ironclad would not have a propulsion system that was exposed to enemy fire, as was the previous standard with a rear or side-mounted paddle wheel. Improvements in shells and powder, including explosive shells and slow-burning powder, were created, which created a severe hazard for wooden ships. The older, solid iron cannonballs could sometimes bounce off wooden hulls of sailing ships or smash through, causing damage, but the new ordinance was much more lethal. The new shells would have a fuse automatically light from when it was fired from the naval gun. The shell would then smash itself into the enemy's ship with the force from the cannon launch and become lodged in the woodwork. Once the fuse time was burned down, the shell would explode, shattering its wooden enclosure and sending bits of sharp wooden splinters into anything and everybody nearby. A key point in history where the advantage of the new type of ordinance was evidenced was during the Crimean War in the Battle of Sinop in 1853. The Russian army had prepared to attack an opposing Ottoman force that had taken shelter in the protected harbor of Sinop. The Russians moved into a closer range of the Ottoman ships and began firing away at the enemy. The Russians made use of the new explosive shells fired from their naval guns, which caused severe damage and started fires that began to engulf the enemy ships. While under continued attack and with the threat of shrapnel taking them out from the explosive rounds, it was difficult for the Ottomans to suppress the fires breaking out from the explosive shot destroying their ships. The battle ended in a decisive victory for the Russians, with only one Ottoman ship managing to make it out of the harbor safely, while the others were destroyed or disabled. This signified the first effective large-scale use of explosive shells, and although it is now debated as to the overall significance on naval ordnance the battle had, it did show to the world that the new armaments could be used effectively in real combat. There was also significant advancement in iron smelting and experimentation of iron as an armor. This, when combined with the technologies we discussed as well as the implementation of steam power, set the stage for the navies of the Civil War to construct their first ironclad vessels. Now let's jump into the start of the United States Civil War. The Southern Confederates initiated the war when they bombarded the Northern Union soldiers at the military fortification of Fort Sumter in South Carolina on April 12, 1861. During the time leading up to the first battle, Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States, tried to find some resolution of the crisis caused by several Southern states succeeding from the Union and forming their own Confederate States of America. 
The goal was to come to terms with the southern states, which had their own lists of grievances. The top issue being that the federal government should not have the ability to dictate terms to them and decide which new states entering the Union would be able to maintain the practice of slavery, which was the economic foundation of much of the South. Preventing an all-out civil war was the goal of the negotiations. In the end, this plan for a peaceful solution didn't work out so well, with the resulting first battle of the Civil War erupting at Fort Sumter. Where this is important to our story is that the state of Virginia had not seceded from the Union in January, as many of the other southern states had. Before the war began, to prevent an escalation to war and provoke the state of Virginia, President Lincoln did not want to send any troops to the key strategic naval yard of Gosport in Norfolk, Virginia to bolster its defenses. Doing so might cause the Virginians to grow defensive and think of this as some sort of a preemptive strike and decide to secede as soon as the troops started nearing their state, as this would be a direct threat on their sovereignty. This was the situation leading right up until the attack on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. Within five days of the Confederates engaging in battle in South Carolina, Virginia proclaimed that it was seceding from the Union to join the Confederate states and the Union troops in Norfolk were put in a bind. In the end, Lincoln's plan was not successful in deterring Virginia, as they sided with the South at pretty much the start of the armed conflict. At the time, Secretary of the Union Navy, Gideon Wells, knew that he had to protect the Gosport Naval Yard and worked to come up with a solution to protect the port which was now surrounded by hostile Confederate territory. Wells sent his chief engineer, Benjamin Isherwood, to Gosport immediately after the outbreak of fighting at Fort Sumter. Benjamin's job was to get a strong naval ship, the Merrimack, fit to get underway. The new ship did not currently have its machinery in working order and was not ready to steam out of the harbor. Along with Benjamin, a new captain for the Merrimack, James Alden, traveled to Gosport to take command with the plan to have the ship steam out of the harbor and head to Philadelphia if Gosport was to be evacuated. Fighting began on April 12th with Fort Sumter, and on April 16th, James Alden reported that the steamship Merrimack was fit to sail out of the harbor. At the time, Commodore McCauley was in charge of the Gosport Naval Yard and was dealing with a shortage of men to carry out repairs or man the ships in the harbor. It was also indicated before the conflict even started that he may have been an alcoholic and an incompetent commander. There was no Union garrison of infantrymen protecting the harbor, and McCauley had reports that Enemy troops were arriving from Richmond and Petersburg, Virginia, heading toward his location. Watchmen and officers had deserted the Union ranks as the days went by, leaving the Commodore with even less troops to mitigate the brewing crisis. The Naval Yard was a scene of chaos as what was left of the troops scrambled to get their jobs done for the planned evacuation. McCauley did not permit the Merrimack to set sail on April 16th. The reason for why is still debated. This ended up being one of the many instrumental missteps of the actions at Gosport during the evacuation that the Confederates would then use to their advantage. The Federal Naval Secretary Gideon Wells knew the situation was serious and sent a relief force of infantry to reach Gosport and protect the harbor and the nearby industrial facilities in Norfolk. He also had a plan in case the situation worsened and the ships needed to be scuttled or destroyed to prevent them from falling into the enemy's hands. He sent a naval detachment with a ship full of explosives to destroy important naval assets before the evacuation of the yard. Back in Gosport on Friday, April 19th, Commodore McCauley was alerted that Confederate troops under the command of General Talifaro were setting up cannon batteries in front of the naval yard. 
and the Commodore's own letter dating April 25th, 1861, which provided additional details on the crisis, the Commodore claimed that he sent a warning to General Talifaro to remove and desist building the batteries, in which the Confederates responded, they were aware of no such batteries. Knowing that he had no leverage to ward off the arrival of the enemy troops, Macaulay decided it was best to scuttle the remaining ships and evacuate the shipyard before they were just completely overrun. Since he only had enough troops to leave with the USS Cumberland, he decided to scuttle the other U.S. Navy ships, the Merrimack, Germantown, and Plymouth, on April 20th. The irony is that around three hours after the ships were scuttled and sent to the bottom of the harbor, a Union relief force arrived under Captain Hiram Paulding. Timely communication was not delivered to Gosport that additional reinforcements would be arriving to help protect the port, and the Commodore acted on what he knew at the time, which was that they were about to get taken over by the Confederates. The new Captain Paulding decided that the destruction of the assets of the port and the remaining Federal ships needed to be destroyed and the evacuation completed rather than trying to stay and protect the port. The remaining wooden ships were set on fire, scuttled ships that were slowly sinking were also set ablaze, men were sent to set fire to the naval buildings and to destroy the dry dock where warships were constructed. The ordnance that could not be taken with them in the evacuation was set for demolition. Explosions, fire, and smoke filled the air around the harbor and continued for hours as the heavy armaments continued to be destroyed around the naval yard. The last of the Federal troops boarded the remaining three ships, including the Cumberland, out of the original 12 that had been stationed in the harbor, and sailed off into the sea, leaving behind them pillars of smoke and the ringing sounds of explosions as heavy-duty military shells continued to be set off from the demolition and fires. The taking of Gosport by the Confederates was greatly assisted by a man named William Mahone. At the outbreak of the war, Mahone was not yet part of the Confederate Army, but was operating the nearby railroad. Working closely with the Confederates, he orchestrated a clever ruse. He ordered a train to arrive near Norfolk and had all of the whistles blowing, the furnace on full blast, and excess steam and smoke spewing out of the locomotive to create as much noise as possible. The passenger train then slowly left the station and a short while later arrived again in the same manner, repeating this process several times. The Union soldiers who could hear all of the commotion assumed that trainloads of Confederate ground troops were arriving. This added to the Union troops feeling that they needed to evacuate in haste before they were overrun. In Commodore Macaulay's letter to his superiors, he claimed that all of the remaining ships in the harbor had been scuttled. The cannons that were left behind were spiked, which means a barbed steel spike was pounded into the iron cannon to disable it. The spike itself was bored through the area known as the touch hole, which is a small opening on the back and top section of the cannon where the powder inside the cannon would be ignited. This would render the gun unusable. All of the arms that could not be taken along on the evacuating ships were simply dumped into the ocean. Machinery was smashed into unworkable conditions. The naval buildings were destroyed so they could not be used by the enemy. The Confederates, now getting comfortable in their newly acquired territory, saw a different picture of the status of the assets of the harbor than the Union leadership. Many of the shops and industrial machinery suffered only minor damage from fires and could be put to use again with a few repairs. Over 1,000 cannons were left strewn about unharmed. The most important asset that was left still standing was the dry dock, also known as the graving dock. This structure could bring in a boat and then pump the water out from underneath it and allow full working access to all parts of the vessel to build and repair any part of a ship. The survival of the dry dock is what enabled the Confederates to immediately begin constructing their own ironclad.
Where was the Merrimack, which would later become the Confederate ironclad? Well, it was sitting as an underwater tomb in the harbor, but we'll get back to that in a moment. The Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, knew that he was at a severe disadvantage to the Union. The only chance the South had against the Union was to build some type of new warship to try and gain a technological advantage over the North's vastly superior naval fleet, which would take years to come to par with. After the taking of the harbor, Mallory even announced his attentions when he stated, and I quote, I regard the possession of an iron-armored ship as a matter of the first necessity. Such a vessel at this time could traverse the entire coast of the United States, prevent all blockades, and encounter with a fair prospect of success their entire navy. If to cope with them upon the sea we follow their example and build wooden ships, we shall have to construct several at one time, for one or two ships would fall an easy prey to her comparatively numerous steam frigates. But inequality of numbers may be compensated by invulnerability, and thus not only does economy but naval success dictate the wisdom and expediency of fighting iron against wood, without regard to first cost. End quote. You could say Secretary Mallory was all aboard with the idea of an armored warship. He had watched the British and French as they worked to create their own armored ship designs and was enamored by the idea itself of creating an armored ship. As the war with the North continued, Mallory worked with two key figures to make the ironclad a reality for the Confederacy, Lieutenant John M. Brooke and Engineer William P. Williamson. They also got together with John L. Porter, who had constructed the Norfolk Yard, to review Brooks' design for a ship with the main hull submerged and the decks above water to be guarded by three or more inches of iron angled horizontally to deflect incoming enemy fire. The design and a plan came together on June 25, 1861, but the members of the group realized that there was presently no manufacturing facilities in the South capable of producing the sophisticated steam engine that would power the ship. Creating and equipping a new facility would take over 12 months. This would severely hinder their efforts to deploy an armored ship before the Union forces could react. This is where the Union ship, the Merrimack, comes in. Apparently, Commodore Macaulay was a bit overzealous in describing how effectively he scuttled the ships in the harbor when he reported back to his superiors. When it was determined that the Merrimack needed to be scuttled, the Union troops taking care of the job bore holes into the bottom of the ship's hull to make sure that it would sink. Fires were then ignited on the ship to destroy the deck and the machinery. The problem was that the holes in the ship ended up making it sink faster than the fire's topside could destroy the equipment. Once the vessel was overflowing with water, it doused the flames that had been set and eliminated any threat of fire damage to the machinery. The ship then sank to the bottom of the harbor where it lay at rest when the Confederates took control of the territory. The Confederates salvaged as much as they could from the harbor that had not been hauled off by the Union Navy. On April 30th, the Baker Wrecking Company raised the Merrimack from its watery grave and placed it in the fully functioning dry dock that the Union Navy had not properly destroyed while they were evacuating the harbor. The addition of a dry dock in combination with a well-built steamship that had many features with only minor damage set up the perfect opportunity for the South to jumpstart their construction of an armor-clad warship. John L. Porter supervised the Merrimack being placed into dry dock and knew the fine details of the current status of the ship. This was the same Porter that had been discussing the creation of an ironclad with other Confederate naval leaders and engineers. The Confederates came together with the idea to adapt the existing ironclad designs and to use the Merrimack as the foundation for a new ironclad ship. 
On June 25, 1861, a full design was released to the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Mallory, who ended up approving the construction of the ship. The total cost was estimated to be $110,000 and $1,800 to refit and armor the Merrimack into a bold new Confederate ship. The retooling and refitting of the Merrimack was already underway by the time a design was chosen for the Ironclad. As the new Confederate ship was of an experimental design, modifications were changed and adapted as the construction continued. The original plan called for three sheets of one-inch thick iron. Tredegar Ironworks of Richmond, Virginia was contracted to deliver one-inch by eight inches wide iron plates that would be used to lay upon one another to provide a three-inch thick armor covering for the ship. At the same time, the Confederate naval powers ran tests with their heavy cannon against different styles of armor plating and decided that the three inches of metal was just too weak and would crack under enemy fire and expose the underneath wooden support structure of the ship. To remedy the problem discovered in the test, the naval authorities decided to go with two inch thick plating and mounting one atop another for a total of four inches of armor. In the live fire test, the four inches of armor proved to withstand sustained attack damage from cannon barrages. This was just one of the changes that made it difficult to figure out how to create the larger size armor. The tools from the ironworks had to be refitted. The one inch plate would have holes punched in it to create an opening for bolts to be driven through the armor and fasten it to the ship. Doubling the thickness of these plates meant that instead of having a simple machine quickly punching a hole in each plate, each hole would have to be slowly drilled out as the new size was simply too large to be punched through with the current equipment. The sheer amount of iron that was required for the ironclad ship was more than was readily available in the entire South. The Confederates sent salvage scrap from Gosport Yard that had been left in ruin and actually pulled up the iron railroad rails in areas where the railroad tracks may fall into enemy hands and then sent it back to the ironworks to be reconstituted into armor for their ironclad. Tredegar Ironworks pumped out iron at the fastest pace that it could from September of 1861 to February 1862 for six months to feed the epic ironclad project in the Gosport Naval Yard. At the same time as this was occurring, Confederate leadership leaked false data to the newspapers that their firing test showed that no amount of iron armor could withstand continued fire from cannons. With the intention, of course, of fooling the Union into believing that they were not really building an iron encased ship. The design was originally expected to be completed by November 1861, but delays, design changes, and trouble receiving the correct materials made it impossible to meet the planned launch date. November stretched into December, and then January. In January of 1862, the workmen building the ship signed an agreement to work each day until 8 p.m. without extra pay to try and complete the construction as soon as possible. A crew for the soon-to-be ship was scrounged together by grabbing men from the army and having them become the naval team that would operate the new Merrimack. The Confederates did not have a navy at the outset of the war and did not have the proper personnel to correctly outfit the ship. By pulling men from the army, they had an inexperienced crew which would not be given a chance to perform training on the Merrimack as it was still in the process of being built. Some of the naval officers and men were able to perform some training with the cannons on board another commandeered ship, the U.S. frigate, the United States. But that was all that they had before they had to go live into operations once their ship was launched. On February 17th, the rebuilt Merrimack was christened the CSS Virginia and it was launched into the ocean water. The old name of the USS Merrimack stuck with many of the people that had worked on the ship as well as the new crew. 
When they reference the ship, they usually reference it as the Merrimack, and this is why even in the history books of today, we still see the Confederate ironclad ship being referenced as the Merrimack instead of the Virginia. Due to the experimental design, many thought that the ship would sink as it was released into the water. During the launching of the ship, there were only five crewmen that were on the ship, while the rest remained as onlookers along the solid ground of the shoreline. There were no major generals, southern aristocrats, or crowds of people watching as the ship launched, as is usually the case with a big, bold new ship. That being said, the ship did enter the water and stay afloat, and now offered the rebellious southern states a significant weapon of war to take on the Union Navy. The final ship measured 262 feet and 9 inches in length. The armored covering over the top of the ship was called the casemate. It consisted of two feet of strong and solid base of the woods pine and oak with another four inches of iron armor placed on top of it. This section of metal armor covered from the waterline to seven feet above the gun deck and had a fully enclosed top. The walls of iron were angled inward and upward from the waterline at a 36 degree angle. This helped to mitigate a direct strike from a foreign shell as some force of the impact would be transferred into kinetic energy, pushing the shell upward across the slope instead of bearing the full impact from a direct head-on collision. Just like when you throw a rock to skip along the top of water instead of throwing it straight down into it to make a big splash, the ship took advantage of the ballistic style of the time period. The two-inch iron plating was first applied horizontally on top of the wood. The second series of two-inch planing was then applied on top of it vertically. This was done to make it even stronger as was proved in the live firing tests against iron armor. This technique reminds me of the deadlifting style in bodybuilding called the mixed grip. One hand faces outward while the other hand faces inward when lifting the bar from the ground to do the deadlift. This creates a force that counteracts the weight of the bar wanting to slip and fall out of your hands, as would normally be the case if both hands faced inwards. On the warship, a similar counterforce prevents a hit on the iron plating from digging deeper into the ship. Bolts were put through the holes previously drilled in the iron armor and fastened on the inside of the ship by nuts. Nuts being the flat pieces of metal, square or hexagonal with a threaded hole through it for screwing onto a bolt as a fastener. Not a reference to the crazy shipbuilders working the crazy long hours to piece together the ship. At the top of the slanting upwards and inwards iron casemate was a flat iron grating leveling out the top of the ship and acting as a roof. Each section of the grate was two inches thick. The total length from where the water touched the ship to the top of the ship was 24 feet high. The back and sides of the ship appeared to be a solid wall of iron facing the enemy. Towards the front of the ship, the rectangular style build was blended into the pilot house, which was built into the shape of a cone pointing upwards. This gave the bow of the ship a distinctive rounded feature as opposed to the flat stern. The pilot house was one of the most important areas of the ship, as it is where the captain and pilot would decide the course for the ship and the plan of attack. And for this reason, it was covered in 12 inch thick iron armor. Four small openings were cut into the conical pilot house to allow the sailors visibility to the outside so that they could chart their path. The ship had eight portholes with four on each side of the main casemate to allow the firing of the two 6.4 inch rifled cannons and six smoothbores down upon the enemy with a broadside. The rifled guns had helical grooves inside the barrel of the cannon. These grooves cut into 
to the inside added the effect of increasing the range and accuracy of the shot. When the shell was fired, the force and heat generated would cause the projectile to push outward and into the walls of the barrel of the gun, and then it would be pushed forward as this was the path of least resistance. As the force of the explosion pushed the projectile into the walls of the cannon, it would catch into the small grooves of the barrel. As the grooves move forward down the barrel around in a spiral motion, it causes the projectile to spin when launched from the cannon, and the gyroscopic effect of the spinning projectile meant that it could travel farther and more accurately than it would have otherwise been able to accomplish. To get an idea of this effect, you can try throwing an American football without having it spiral and see just how short and inaccurate it can be thrown. Then... Turn on the TV and watch a American-style football game and see just how accurate quarterbacks can throw the football when they apply the perfect gyroscopic spin. This is the same effect that the rifled cannons were able to produce. There were also three gun ports placed on both the bow and stern where the two 7-inch and two 6.4-inch rifled cannons could be positioned to fire. The ship was covered in 14 total gun ports for their 10 cannons to enable the best positioning depending on the needs of the battle. The rest of the ship was covered in iron, but most of the non-vital areas only maintained a one-inch iron plating, which even included the area three feet below the waterline. The higher-ups in the Confederate party requested that the front of the ship include a ram. The end result was a cast-iron ram placed on the ship, extending out from the conical pilot house to the front of the ship and weighing in at a whopping 1,500 pounds. The Confederate leadership envisioned their ironclad ram just plowing through wooden enemy vessels, laying waste to the Union naval blockade, and clearing the path for victory. Naval ships had always used rams going way back to the ancient Greeks and even before them as a weapon of naval warfare. The designers of the Virginia were not as enthusiastic as the Confederate leadership regarding the usefulness of the ram, and while it was being installed, several blunders were overlooked so that it could be finished on time, and the end result was poor functionality. The Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Mallory, had high hopes for the ram, as can be seen with his statement to the future captain of the ship. Mallory explained, quote, Her powers as a ram are regarded as formidable, and it is hoped that you may be able to test them. End quote. Aware of the constant shortages that the South would face with their supplies, he also indicated, Even without guns, the ship would be formidable as a ram. You can see here that the naval leaders had their own views of what exactly the combat strategy of the ship could be. These beliefs sometimes conflicted with the men who were actually building and designing the ship. This new ironclad was such a unique creation that no one really knew how effective or how much of a disaster it would turn out to be. When the Virginia slowly waded out into the harbor, it did stay afloat, but a number of issues immediately came to light. The crewmen of the ship claimed that every crease and seam of the ship slowly leaked, defying the caulking job that had been designed to hold back the water in vulnerable areas. The ship was also not designed with a proper ventilation system, and the crew was enclosed in an iron confinement that lacked proper airflow. The damp and wet interior of the ship and poor air circulation created an unhealthy and uncomfortable environment for the men that had to operate in the confined quarters. Once the ship began to be used in full capacity, crewmen were constantly being added to the sick list due to the poor conditions resulting in illness. Another flaw in the ship's design had to do with something in naval terms called displacement. Displacement is basically how much the ship weighs. The full definition is how much water a ship displaces when it is in the water equipped with weapons and armament. Think of taking a basketball and pushing it slowly downward into a pool of water as you are holding it. 
As you push down, the pressure of the water pushes up against the ball, trying to push it towards the surface. As you break the plane of the water, the more you push down, the more the ball pushes the water around it outward to fit. The amount of water that the object pushes out of the way is the displacement. If you see a cargo tanker or a cruise ship coming into a modern port, you can sometimes barely see the different colored underside of the ship. Then when the ship has offloaded its cargo, you can see the usually lighter color of the underside of the ship, which no longer sits as deep in the water and is more visible. This is because with less weight on the ship, it is not able to have the downward force to push more water out of the way and sink deeper into the water. When the Virginia was sitting in the harbor, the men realized that the displacement had been calculated incorrectly. The ship was supposed to sit deep enough to cover the weaker sides of the ship where the iron was only one inch thick. Instead, the thick iron armor of the casemate was left above the waterline instead of being submerged a couple feet underneath, which left the one inch armor of the lower section vulnerable to an attack. If there were any types of waves, or in nautical terms, swells, that occurred during combat, an enemy ship could easily place a well aimed shot into the belly of the exposed one inch armor of the Virginia, punching through the hole and causing a breach below the waterline. The ship would then quickly start to take on water and endanger the entire vessel of being sunk. To counteract the improper displacement of the ship, additional scrap was used as ballast, which would increase the total weight. The extra weight was distributed evenly throughout the interior of the ship by placing the scrap in any open areas. The crew added as much possible to the weight of the ship, but eventually got to the point where if any more weight was added, it might cause a catastrophic failure of the bottom hull of the vessel and break the ship apart. Even with all of the additional weight brought on, as well as stores and armaments, the Virginia's final displacement left her with the thicker armor casemate only six inches below the waterline. Naval ships are frequently in swells that are higher than six inches, and this could expose the ship to a well-timed shot in the low armor section but it would just have to do for the Virginia. There was no more time to correct this issue without drastic overhaul of the entire vessel. If the Union became aware of the vulnerability, it could lead to the downfall of the ship. The Virginia was now afloat and had a crew set to man the ship. The only thing it was missing was a leader to take charge of the ship and begin to move against the Union Navy. The man that would become captain of the Virginia was Franklin Buchanan. Buchanan had served a distinguished career in the Union Navy starting in 1815, well before the Civil War erupted starting in the year 1861. He served on several different vessels over the years and was made superintendent of the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. In the year 1855, he became a captain and later was granted the role of commanding the Washington Navy Yard. He fought in the Mexican-American War and was part of the Perry Expedition to Japan to try and open the country to foreign trade by presenting a show of force. When the Civil War started, Buchanan resigned from his post with the Federal Navy on April 22, 1861. Although he lived in northern Maryland, he had strong southern ties and did not want to be placed in a position fighting against the Union or having to pick a side in the war between fellow Americans. He had served for 46 years in the Federal Navy. Buchanan tried to live a quiet life, but the call to action was too much for him. He tried to have his command reinstated with the Federal Navy after becoming restless in his retirement. But because of his ties to the South, all of his attempts to rejoin the naval fleet ended up being shot down by his superiors in the Union Navy. At the same time, Buchanan was having trouble getting back to a naval position. The leader of the Confederates, Mallory, realized there was an opportunity to sway Buchanan to his side in the war and offered him exactly the fine naval command he was looking for. 
Mallory offered Buchanan a top position in the Confederate Department Office of Order and Detail, which Buchanan snapped at the chance to take. Once his skills were seen as an advisor to the Confederate president, Mallory offered Buchanan the position of captain of the CSS Virginia on February 24, 1862. A strong naval commander had a chance to command a cutting-edge vessel created by the most modern engineering team of the time to help turn the tide of war into the South's favor. Basically, Buchanan had the opportunity to operate the Confederate superweapon of the time. The dream of any aspiring naval leader, the well-experienced and ambitious Buchanan accepted the commission, and the Virginian now had its final missing piece, its captain. Thank you for listening. This concludes part one of the Ironclads of the Civil War series. If you would like to find some additional information, check out other episodes, or help out the show, please check out our website at sparkhistory.com. Stay tuned for part two of the Ironclads of the Civil War series, where we are going to get into the North's struggle to develop their own ironclad and the course of the ingenious inventor who would ultimately design the Union warship. Once again, thank you for listening, and have a great day.